Good morning. Good morning. It's lovely to see you all as well. Uh, it's great to be here. Great to be here. Let's, uh, if you've got a Bible with you, you might want to be opening it at Acts, book of Acts, chapter 19. We're going to be continuing our series there. Today, last time we were there, we were looking at being filled with the Holy Spirit. I know a lot of you came forward at the end of that meeting and were prayed for for a greater measure, a continued filling of the Holy Spirit. Am I all right? Do I need to do anything? Am I just, is it sounding okay? Good. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll ignore my own voice. No, I don't know. Yeah, is that a good thing to do? Um, so today we're going to be looking again and we're going to see God powerfully at work through his word and his spirit. Powerfully at work. Uh, and we're going to look at some different responses that we see in the passage, and then we'll see how we respond at the end. Uh, but I, I think I've got a growing faith, a growing sense during the week that God is going to do something tangible in some lives in this room this morning in terms of healing and setting people free. So let's see if that happens. I'm going to read for us from verse 8 in chapter 19 of Acts. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened... Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. 
as I say, packed in to the first part of, uh, of these first few verses, we see the Word of God and the Spirit of God powerfully at work together. They're like a formidable partnership. Let me pray. Lord, I pray this morning that your word and your spirit would be powerfully at work in us, just as it was in Ephesus those years ago. Lord, that's our prayer. Lord, as we've already heard in in so many contributions this morning, Lord, we need you, we rely on you, we believe in you. You're a powerful God. And we trust you, and Lord, we, we, we ask you to be present with us, to hear, understand, and respond to your word this morning. Amen. So we start in a synagogue, as we do. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Paul was following his pattern uh, where he would go to places, he would arrive there, he would look for the synagogue and go and find uh, God's people where they had, had, would normally be gathered in the synagogue. And Paul, while he was there, he's persistent. For three months, he stays there, boldly and persuasively proclaiming the kingdom of God. He, his desire is to, is, is to get these guys who are, uh, who are still hoping that their following of the law is going to be enough. The following of some religious rules will be enough to make them good enough for God. And he needs to persuade them. He wants to persuade them that that's not going to work, that they need to give up on being good enough. And they need to know that Jesus is the one that is good enough for them. The Jews had been focused on this for centuries, keeping the rules. So Paul did have to work hard to try and help them understand the message of grace. We also see that he moves on to the hall of Tyrannus. It's thought that this was like a school-type building where learning would have been happening in in ways during, during the day and the week, particularly in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. And perhaps... Paul was allowed to use it in the heat of the afternoon when it wasn't otherwise being used. And the the Jews and the Greeks we hear were were learning in that environment for a couple of years. Uh, We could make something of the discursive nature that Paul uses there. Sounds different from the style he was using in the synagogue. Maybe it sounds a bit like School of Leadership, two years studying the word in a discursive way with some questions and answers. Well, that was every day. School of Leadership isn't every day. Or we could liken it to other times we gather and talk about the word of God, like maybe at Kids Life or at a Fuel or in a small group during the week. Places where we gather and discuss the word of God, where we feed on it. I was reminded of Paul that we hear about in in 1 Corinthians at another time, where he talks about how he tailors his communication to his audience. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He goes on to talk about being under the law to, uh, uh, and, and to talk to those that are not having the law and, to the, and about talking to the weak. He finishes by saying, I've become all things to all people so that all, by all means possible, I might save some. 
I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Paul was just so passionate, wasn't he, about wanting to share the gospel. He would, he would go out of his way to connect with people where they were so that he could explain the message of grace. He could explain the gospel. He would talk about it. He would boldly proclaim it in all these different ways. In fact, he kind of tailors his whole life, doesn't he, to do that, to make sure he's there in the place. He's there in Ephesus. He finds this hall. He gets it. He goes there and he, and he talks and he gathers people. He wants them to know Jesus is the Messiah. But I think we can make even more of the effectiveness of consistent preaching of the gospel and consistent hearing of the gospel that comes as we gather, that comes uh, here we see over, over two years, two years worth. Maybe in one's early Christian life, the discoveries of significant new pieces of doctrine can come quite thick and fast as you first start reading the Bible and discovering the truth that's in there, working out how to apply it, letting it shape you, finding it changing you, finding it changing your desires and your appetites and everything. Like Paul on the Damascus Road, completely inverted. He was there before that, he always used to go to the synagogue first, but that was to try and hunt out any that were following Jesus so he could uh, take them captive or, or, or kill them. Now he's completely different. He's, he's there trying to find them, trying to discover those who, uh, and, and add people to following the way, as he called it, those that are following Jesus. Maybe as your Christian life goes on, the, the rate of change maybe doesn't seem quite so dramatic. But I was just reflecting as I was preparing for this and thinking about the rediscoveries I find in Scripture, the things that I know I knew but have maybe not been called to mind lately, and I discover them again and can apply them again. And I'm aware of the new situations that I keep coming across where I need to apply old truths to the new situation I find myself in. In fact, perhaps... The further I get into life, the more I realize how much I, st I still need to discover, how much I still need to be shaped by the Word of God. And that's why I keep coming week after week, after year after year, after decade after decade. We've got to learn. We've got to keep learning. We've got to keep being reminded to live daily reliant on Him, applying His Word as a powerful and effective weapon in our lives. So, in a world where a 30-second video clip can sometimes feel like a bit long and drawn out, this is wonderfully countercultural. In a world that's drawn to just oversimplified philosophies and quick fixes and three-step plans, God offers you years and years and years of consistent learning about his word, learning about him through his word. And God offers you a really uneven learning pattern. He offers you moments of sudden revelation, and he offers you patient pondering in abundance. There are things to hear and store up in your heart, ready for something that's going to happen in the future that you're going to need. 
maybe especially if you're getting on later in life. The challenges might be seeming to increase, and you need the Word of God. There will also be moments where Scripture is just leaping off the page and slapping you in the face right in the moment you need it. It's an uneven process, but God is at work as you continue in his word, as you continue to hear it, as you continue to apply it. And we can see the effects of what happens while this consistent teaching and hearing is going on. We can see it in verse 10, where it says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul seems to have stayed in one place for two years, and the word of the Lord has spread across the whole of Asia. God can do that. I'm sure people were coming and going from Ephesus. Maybe they were coming, finding the gospel, meeting Jesus, and then heading out and spreading the word. The word needs to be spoken about so that it can be passed on. And then hand in hand with the good news of Jesus being proclaimed and discussed, we see that God was also doing miracles through Paul. And we've got this slightly, slightly bonkers adjective that's used where it says they were extraordinary miracles. What about you? That raises questions for me. It raises the question, are there any other kind of miracles? It raises the question, are some miracles just ordinary? Were they just taking them for granted? Miracles are happening, they're just taking them for granted? I don't know, was that, could that have been the case? Or what's with the handkerchiefs and aprons? I, 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 I haven't got an apron on today. I don't know what Paul was wearing. I'm sure he looked great in it. Was he just using his handkerchief to mop his brow because the heat was so intense in the middle of the day in the hall of Tyrannus? Was it his sweat? Was it the sweat on the handkerchief that made all the difference? Is that what, why people were being healed? Does he, did he even know that his handkerchiefs were being taken to sick people? I don't know. I'm not going to answer any of those questions. I don't really think they're that important, to be honest. I think there are, there's some weird details there. But actually, I'm not massively bothered about that. I, I, I think, because I think there's bigger questions that this raises and that we need to consider that could be much more useful. And I think I want to start with asking us the question, do we believe that God wants to make miraculous changes to our minds and our bodies today? Do we expect him to do that? Dare we ask him, and will we tell other people when he does? We can see throughout Acts, and we have been looking at it week by week, and we have seen it, that God is a healer. And we see that he chooses all sorts of different ways of doing that. Sometimes... He might heal someone instantly and fast, sometimes slowly. Sometimes he might do it on earth. Sometimes he will do it in eternity. He can use a handkerchief. He can also use his spit. And we see the woman 
that was with the continuous bleeding that apparently helped herself to healing when he didn't even seem to know that it was being asked for. So we are told that illnesses are cured and evil spirits do leave when they encounter Jesus. Those around Paul at this time, they're experiencing that changing in their minds, their hearts and their bodies, not only becoming to salvation, but being healed, being set free from demons. This is similar to the crowds that followed Jesus and their experience. We read it in the Word, we read, we read it in the Word, don't we? The, the work of the Spirit. We're talking about the work of the Spirit, it's in the Word. Like I say, these things hand in hand. And the Holy Spirit is bringing freedom from habits, freedom of all sorts in that moment. It brings us freedom from the things that we turn to for comfort or distraction that we think are helping us but are actually keeping us bound up. God can bring an end to this pain or that pain. He does do that. And of course, there's a battle. The devil wants us to remain bound up. He's actively trying to keep us bound up. He would have been doing it then. He wants us to try and rule out the possibility that God will set you free or heal you. But God does set people free. He does have the final say. In him, we do overcome. In him, we walk away from bad habits. In him, we walk away from thought patterns that bring us harm. In him, we discover our true identity. And it's not in a team we follow. It's not in a hobby we pursue or the clothes we wear or the music we listen to. It's not in an illness we have. In him, we receive healing. He takes away pain. As I say, looking back through Acts and the previous things we've looked at, we, we, we saw where Peter and John healed the man crippled from birth in Jesus' name. Stephen and Philip did great wonders, performed miraculous signs. Several times, angels release people from prisons. Jesus comes to Saul, to Paul, and blinds him, and he saves him, then he heals him. Prison doors opened, evil spirits leaving. This is what we see in the word of God. This is the God who we follow that does these things. And we've got more to come. There's more to come in Acts. We haven't finished yet. There's more chapters and there's more miracles to hear about. Even a couple of weeks ago in our small group, we were just catching up with each other and a couple of people were saying about how they had been miraculously healed, how they prayed and God had healed them. NHS weren't involved at all. It can happen. And I know I've said before that we face a temptation to shy away from asking. We can be cautious of asking for the miraculous or the impossible, perhaps to protect ourselves from disappointment. It's a genuine dilemma we face. We can, we have to face. We do face. It was uh, 
stunning, really, to, to just hear Phil speak about Jonathan and his armor-bearer. Because uh, I was just about to talk about Jonathan and his armor-bearer this morning. Um, I was actually going to pick up on the, the slightly uh, previous part of that, where uh, he says to his armor-bearer, come over, let's go to the outpost of that, those uncircumcised men. And he says this, he says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. I don't know about you, that helps me. It helps me be prepared to risk asking God for the impossible, knowing that he absolutely can do it and he very much might. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to worship him. I'm still going to trust him. I'm still going to walk with him. However he answers, however long he makes me wait, that's not a problem. I can leave that with God. But he does very clearly say to ask, to seek, to knock on his door. My encouragement to us is to try and get over ourselves and try and get over that risk and bring our requests to God with faith. Jonathan, he knew his biblical history. He knew his God. He knew that it's not just who has the biggest army that wins or who shouts the loudest. It's whom the Lord fights for that wins. That should, and it does, lead us to prayer. I mentioned we would look at some responses. I'm going to look at three responses that we see in the passage here. The first one we find in verse 9 where it says, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. I think we can be joyful that we can deduce that some of them did believe because only some of them became obstinate and didn't believe. They chose not to believe what Paul was was telling them. That happens. It's a response that we might experience when we talk about Jesus. This message of grace being extended to them, and they're they're not wanting it. They're not wanting to receive it. So hard to understand why they wouldn't. So much we want to help people to understand and to respond to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the way, the truth and the life. Jesus had encountered unbelief as a response in his own ministry. Uh, There's probably a few places I could go to. I'm just going to mention where John recounts that some Jews, from some the response from some Jews to Jesus in, in John 12, where he says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Jesus himself experienced that. Paul experienced that. We might experience that. One of the great warning passages in the Bible is in Hebrews, and it's against having an unbelieving heart. It says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Unbelief is a tragic choice. Unbelief can survive despite witnessing miracles by Jesus in person. Unbelief keeps you separated from God. In case you aren't certain, I'm not recommending unbelief as the response to emulate. 
Neither am I recommending fake belief. We have this dramatic scene where evil spirits are living in this man in verse, from verse 13. And the seven sons of Sceva don't appear to know Jesus themselves. They're quoting Jesus whom Paul preaches. They're trying to claim authority, but they don't have it. I could call that fake belief. And the experience that we've just read about there of the seven sons of Sceva seems to make it clear that it doesn't end well. It doesn't work. It also makes it clear that God is holy. That the enemy is real and evil, this story here. The story of the, the miracles that God was doing in Paul that we've read about in verse 12. They're, they're a beautiful report, aren't they, of freedom and healing. Expressions of the Father's love for his children. It makes it all the more tragic that the seven son, for the seven sons and for the man who had the evil spirit, who didn't, on this occasion at least, get the release that, that he so needed. I've just been deliberately brief about those two options of unbelief and fake belief. But we have to acknowledge them. We have to recognize that they were options, albeit poor ones for Paul's hearers, and, and, and they're options for us today. But it's so exciting, isn't it, when people don't choose that, when people decide to believe in Jesus. When someone turns their back on sin and decides that they're all in with Jesus. That's why it is such a wonderful and beautiful thing when people come and discover genuine belief. But we've got to remain aware that the temptation to unbelief is still a weapon of the enemy. He's, the devil's going to carry on trying to undermine our belief in God. He wants to pick us off. He wants to divide us. He wants to destroy people, especially those that belong to Jesus. But we don't give our lives to God primarily because of these warnings or just to avoid these mistaken ways of thinking, even though the fear of the Lord is, is clearly a factor there in verse 17. We come to God because, like was prayed out this morning, and like he did physically for, for Paul and spiritually for Paul. He opens our eyes to him. He reveals the full reality of the wonderful good news to our hearts and our minds. He reveals that he's our creator. He reveals that he's chosen us and that he's loved us with the deepest and, and most profound ways possible. He came humbly to unite us with himself. And his love, his love shown in action on the cross, draws us to him. As a good and loving father, he draws us to himself and then he gives us good gifts. He gives us faith and we can genuinely believe. We can genuinely believe. I'm just going to read it again from verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. 
a number who had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So I think we can see that the genuine belief is expressed in two particular ways from this passage. We see genuine repentance and we see genuine mission. The burning of the scrolls and the word of the Lord spreading widely. I think I noticed a few things as I was looking at this. One, firstly, they, they, were, they were repeat repenters. They were repeat repenters. Because we're not reading just about those just as they come to faith. We're believing that those were belie- some of those were believers who had believed for a while. But were still keeping something from their past life. I'm sure they would have repented of sin at the start of their relationship with Jesus. But there's this another moment where they repent again for this new sin that they're, they're now realizing. As Christians... We can keep repenting of our sin as it surfaces in our lives. It's a blessing when God surfaces in our lives because we can get free by repenting. We can become clean again. We can keep clean. It's not something that we just do once. It's something we need to keep doing. This particular sin that they deal with in this moment is that they've got possession of all their old life sorcery paraphernalia I don't know what was on those scrolls, but clearly they were a connection to evil. And they were still holding on to them because they still own them. But I imagine that these scrolls were kind of still having a hold on them. And it needed to be dealt with. In Matthew 13, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. You can't hold on to something and be free from it. Some of the believers here hadn't got free from something in their past. But here it happens. Here that opportunity is taken. We've got this atmosphere of a, of a healthy fear of messing around with darkness, coupled with, uh, with, with holding of Jesus in high honor. It says they've been holding Jesus in high honor. In a place where Jesus is held in high honor, there is a reaction. There is a wanting to get clean. And the believers here took that opportunity to do that. And they really go for it, don't they? They get it all together. They set light to it, a full burning of the whole lot. Millions of pounds worth of, of, of stuff in today's money. I know I've used the, 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 the analogy of the merchant who sold all he had as a bit of a comparison. But in this case, they weren't going to sell the stuff. They'd have realized the irony of celebrating their freedom by selling it to someone else so that it could enslave them. So they're not going to do that. They're going to burn it up. They, don't, they want it got rid. And there was no chance of it coming back. There was no backup plan. There was no keeping hold of it for a backup plan or selling it so it could be bought back later. 
it was got rid. It got burnt up. It was destroyed. Jesus says, go and sin no more. John says, don't love the things of this world. As well as being repeat repenters, they were also mission-minded. These well-taught and spirit-filled Christians want others to be saved too. God's placed this desire in them. How do we know that? We can look at verse 10 and verse 20. It's in there twice. All the Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There must have been some talking going on. They must have been passing it on. They must have been letting people know what had happened. God places this desire in us when we're saved. And the enemy is would have been continually trying to distract them with various temptations like he still does with us Christians today, doesn't he? Trying to keep them silent in different ways, keeping them holding on to unforgiveness or dissuading them from boldness as they look to persuade others. Suggesting that they shrink back or avoid talking about Jesus. Stirring up distension and division amongst them. Even trying to stop them asking God for miracles and freedoms. Because the enemy just wants to bind people up. He wants to do it in any way he can. But God tells us what we should do. He gives us instructions. His word informs us. And what he says is ask and seek and knock. Keep coming to him. Asking, seeking and knocking. He leads them to repentance and he puts mission in their hearts. And he makes sure that we're not unaware of the enemy's schemes. God wants them to walk in freedom. He's won that on the cross. Why would he not want them to enjoy the privilege of it, of walking in that? And why would he not want them to be pointing, us to be pointing others to this same Jesus too? I want us to land in Luke 11, where Jesus is asked for help by his disciples to learn how to pray. And he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, as we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Hallow be your name. Jesus, highly honoured, exalted. It's got to be where we start. And he goes on to tell the story of, 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 uh, to encourage us to keep asking. And, he, and he, he, says, he says, because of your shameless audacity, you're going to get answers. He encourages us to come and ask him with shameless audacity one of my favorite pair of words in the Bible that come and ask God with shameless audacity that's how he wants to be approached with those kind of asks and then he tells he says a bit more and he promises that those who ask it will be given to 
Those who seek will find, and those who knock will have the door open to them by him. That's Jesus' posture towards us. He's waiting to hear from us. He's ready to give to us our daily bread, what we need for each day. He's ready to lead us into repentance. He's prepared to help us resist temptation. And then he finishes that section by talking about the good gifts that a father gives his children. And his focus goes to the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's help, don't we? None of this is about, as I started, as Paul was trying to explain to the Jews, just as we started, this isn't about how good we are, what we do, how many rules we keep. This is about the Spirit at work in us, setting us free, leading us to repentance, healing us, taking away our pain, equipping us for life and a life of godliness.